Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Let's open in our Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Today is the second to the last in our sermon series in 1 Timothy. And then we'll be beginning a new series in September. Uh, well, September 11th, we'll begin a new series called We Believe. And we're going to journey through 10 sort of concrete foundational doctrines. And so uh, we're going to unpack just a little bit about what we believe, not just as Baptists, but as Christians uh, over the course of 10 weeks with a few breaks in between uh, from we believe in God to Jesus Christ and salvation, the gospel, heaven and hell, and uh, all those foundational doctrines of who we are as believers. Uh, we have these two remaining weeks here in 1 Timothy as Paul concludes his letter to this young pastor. And today we really reach the end of this series within a series. Uh, I've called the last couple sermons Family Matters in part one, part two, and today we come into part three. And remember I said, you know, as we began First Timothy, Paul was looking at the big picture, the big theology, the big framework of who we are as Christians, what we've been called to do in this world, his calling on Timothy, preaching the word, being faithful to the word, warning it against false teaching and false teachers, and dealing with uh, leadership within the church, qualified leaders, men as elders and, and deacons leading the church, and the role of men and women in the church and in the home. And then as we came into this, this sort of series within a series, Family Matters, we looked at relationships within the local church, beginning with how we deal with our widows and those who are in need within the church, and then talking about our relationship to our elders and our pastors within the church, our leadership, and how to deal with service and love and submission. And then this week, we're going to look at a couple of peculiar relationships uh, Paul's going to begin with uh, slaves and masters. He's going to talk about contentment, about false teaching, and about the importance of truth and humbly submitting to truth. Look there at 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers or that they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we could not take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. God, our Father, this is your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. And we submit to you and to your word this morning. Help us to lay aside our thoughts and our opinions and our feelings. and To bring ourselves exposed here before the light of your word. Speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. We are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, serve better. When I was taking a preaching class in seminary, the, the, te- the professor of the class made us do our points as imperatives. In other words, the points had to be do this, be this, uh, some sort of command for the people to latch on to, very applicational. And I thought of that in reading this text today because this is very applicational stuff. This is family, interpersonal stuff within the church. And if we're going to read this and take anything away from it, there are some things that we can do. And the first one today is to serve better. Paul says in these first two verses that servants, bond servants, and you'll see down at the bottom of your footnote if you have an ESV or some other version that gives you some explanation, the word is doulos, which is a servant, could also be translated slave. If anyone is under the yoke as a slave or a bondservant, regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So the glaring thing we must deal with in this text today is the obvious issue and the problem of slavery. Does Paul condone slavery? Does the Bible condone slavery? Can these verses be used or misused as they have been in the past in our own nation to support and uphold the wicked practice of human slavery. Is that what Paul intends to do? Is that what the point of these verses is? we got to understand that Roman life in the first century was built around the system, the social class. In India, they would call it a caste system in which people are born or they come into certain classes, certain socioeconomic statuses that really is where they stay their entire lives. And in this scenario, slavery was just simply part of normal Roman life in the first century. The entire structure of Roman society was based on indentured servitude or slavery. Now, we have to make a distinction here between what was practiced as slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire and what we know as the race-based slavery trade in our own nation in the 1800s and before. This was not the same. It was not race-based. It was more often than not as as a result of war or result of a conflict in which people were taken prisoner. People were taken captive, and they could work off debts by doing this. Many would serve seven years. Many slaves or bond servants would serve seven years before being set free. And on top of being set free after those seven years, honest masters in Roman society were supposed to collect money during those seven years so that when that slave or that servant had paid off their debt, they were then given wages by that master for the seven years they had worked. Servants in the first century were often considered members of the household. 
They were given certain liberties. They were afforded trials in court. We would look at this and consider this more an employee-employer relationship. Or maybe we should say an indentured employee to an employer. In many cases in the first century, these types of servants and slaves had it better than many of the regular poor. Indentured servants or slaves had a job. They had food. They had housing. They had clothing. And so Paul steps into this situation, and as John MacArthur says, he simply deals with it as it exists. Paul deals with the social system as it exists. You have to understand that from the vantage point of the Apostle Paul, he has no interest in social reform. That is not his mission. That is not his call. He's not called to speak truth to power and upend the, old, the whole Roman system of government. Paul's calling is central. Not social reform, but the gospel. And he preaches to the world as it is. John MacArthur in his commentary says, Any slave insurrection would have been brutally crushed and the slaves massacred. The gospel would have been swallowed up in destruction and the message of social reform. So I like the way MacArthur words this. Paul makes this workable, if not ideal. If we're going to live in this system, in this dark, sinful age, this is how the gospel affects that system. Paul is not called to change the entire social structure. In Acts 26, verses 17 through 18, when Paul is called to minister and to preach the gospel, he says, I've delivered to you uh, from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And God says to Paul, I have called you to open their eyes that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, When I came to you, I did not come with uh, lofty wisdom. I didn't come with uh, philosophy and debate. I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God, deciding to know nothing among you except for Jesus and him crucified. So when Jesus knocked down Paul on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, this is what I'm calling you to do. He did not say, I want you to be a social warrior. I'm not interested, Paul, in you going to fight for social justice in this broken, sinful world. Paul, what I'm interested in you doing is going to be a light for Christ, going to be a light to the Gentiles with one message and one message only, the gospel of Christ and him crucified. That is your singular message, Paul, and Paul was always on message and on mission. That is not to say that we should not be concerned with social issues. That is not to say that we as Christians should not be concerned with social injustice. The gospel permeates everything. And from the beginning, the gospel was permeating everything. In fact, if you listen closely to the message of the New Testament, and you see how those passages were used in the destruction of slavery in our own nation, you can see that the gospel permeates even this issue of slavery. Christianity and the gospel sowed the seeds of slavery's end. You notice that even here, Paul talks about slaves and masters as if they are brothers. He addresses slaves. He addresses masters. He addresses men. He addresses women. Something that would have been revolutionary for someone speaking to a group of people to do. Paul wants us to keep our eyes on the prize. While the gospel permeates everything, 
And while the gospel speaks to social issues and everything else in between, the gospel permeates everything, but everything is not the gospel. The gospel permeates everything, but everything is not the gospel. And we have to be very careful of this as churches, as movements, as denominations, that while we are concerned for social reform and justice and equity and all those wonderful words that we stand for as Christians and as Americans, as we stand for and fight for those things, we don't let those things become the gospel. Those things should be the outworking of who we are in Christ. They are not the message in and of themselves. The gospel permeates everything, but everything is not the gospel. Paul knew that. That's why he is not interested in social reform and a slave rebellion. He's interested in preaching the gospel of Christ and making sure that nothing distracts from that. You'd ask, why would Paul say to slaves, make sure you obey your masters? Make sure that you honor them because they are worthy of all honor. Excuse me. Everyone's got the crud today. Zane was talking earlier. He peeked out of the sound booth and said something. I didn't even know it was Zane because he sounded so strange. So we're all, we're all dealing with the same stuff. So I'll have to take some water every now and then. Paul says the gospel is number one and nothing should distract from that message. Which is why he says to these slaves, these bond servants, do not be disrespectful. Do not be insubordinate. But he also says to masters, do not be abusive. Do not be hateful. In Philemon, the book of Philemon, the letter that, that Paul is writing, really about a relationship between a slave and his master, Onesimus, who's being returned to Philemon, Paul addresses this issue and says, you should receive him back as your brother. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, in Christ there is no slave or free or male or female. We are all one in Christ. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says something similar when he addresses us all as one body, saying, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. But the same concern that has driven this whole letter, Paul wants to protect and to guard the public witness of the church for the sake of the gospel. In the first chapter, he deals with false teaching. Remove them. Charge them not to talk that way anymore. In chapter 2, he tells us to pray for all people, especially those in authority. In chapter 3, Paul deals with leadership in the church. And the main qualification for leaders in the church is what? Be above reproach. Be blameless. The public witness of the church. And now in chapters 5 and 6, he deals with our behavior as individual Christians and our families and as a church. And what's the main concern? Public witness, what the world sees and how we behave according to how we believe. And he addresses slaves and masters in that same context. To both slaves and masters, do not behave in a way that is unbecoming to the gospel. With rebellious attitudes, with mindsets that detract from the gospel. He says in verse 1, give honor. He says in verse 2, respect. At the end of verse 2, serve with excellence. But do you see what the point of it all is in verse 2? Oh, sorry, at the end of verse 1. So that the name of God might be honored and the teaching may not be reviled. 
What's the point in slaves respecting their masters? What's the point in masters treating their slaves with justice and with kindness and mercy? Why? So that God's name will be honored. So that the gospel will spread and will not be distracted from. A more modern application that we can apply to us is probably with our bosses, our supervisors, our authorities. And the question I would ask you this morning as employees is what do they think of you? What is your attitude as a worker? What is your service as an employee, your morale, your work ethic? What does it say to them about God's authority? You say, I follow Jesus as Lord. Well, what does that kind of submission and obedience look like on a normal everyday level with those who are over you in the world, in your work, at your school, in your home? Does your attitude, your service, your morale say to them, I have a Lord who is Jesus? Or does it say, I have a Lord who is myself? Does a hateful, insubordinate, argumentative spirit reinforce the notion to them that Christians are nothing but hypocrites? Being argumentative, insubordinate, hateful, prideful, arrogant to your boss, to your employer, to any authority, to your parents, to your teachers. Does that tell them, I follow Jesus? Or does it tell them, I follow myself? Does it tell them, I willingly submit to Jesus as Lord, or I am my own Lord? Does a rebellious, uncooperative uncooperative attitude betray what we say about following Jesus as our Lord? Or do you show a Savior who was humiliated for us? In Philippians chapter 2, in those first eight verses, Paul talks about Jesus and having this same mind in you, which was in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was equal with God, did not selfishly cling to his rights as God, but emptied himself humbled himself, and became a servant. Does your testimony in your workplace and to those who are in authority over you, does your testimony point to that Savior? Does it point to the Savior who Isaiah identified as a suffering servant? One who came to literally lay his life down for people who hated him. And you say, well, you don't know how my boss is. You don't know how my teacher is. You don't know how my parents are. You don't understand the whole picture. And I don't need to. Jesus laid down his life for those who were his enemies. He was humiliated willingly by those who hated him and mistreated him. And so the command to us even if not to lay down our lives for them, just to simply submit to them and obey them as a testimony to Jesus. So when you think about your Christian life, it's not just the big stuff. Your public witness is not just about these blatant, big, unrepentant sins in public, though that's included. It's the everyday stuff. Simple questions as a believer. Am I a good employee? Am I a good student? Do I honor my mother and my father? You think little things like this don't matter. Think of your public witness and what it says about Jesus. What are you telling those in charge over you? 
Are you contrary? Are you argumentative, undignified, disrespectful? And if so, what does that communicate? Calvin said, as as if God, whom we worship, incited us to rebellion. And as if the gospel rendered obstinate and disobedient those who ought to be subject to others. In other words, Calvin says the gospel did not come to make us insubordinate and disobedient. We should not abuse our freedom and our liberty in Christ to say that we don't listen to anybody or obey anybody or submit to anybody. On the contrary, we follow our Lord who willingly submitted and who willingly humbled himself and then we do the same. MacArthur goes on to say, displaying a proper attitude of submission and respect and performing quality work helped make the gospel believable. Those who profess Christ and yet are insubordinate to their employers or lazy are a poor witness. Are you making the gospel believable in your workplace? Or are you distracting from the gospel? Bosses, supervisors, employers, the same vein for you. Your workers, your employees, those under you, your children, your students. They are your brothers and sisters if they're believers. But here, here's the thing. Even if they're not believers, you are. Even if your employees are not believers, you say, well, they're not my brothers, but they're your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are a believer. You follow Jesus. Are they seeing that example in you? Tender, compassionate, fair, just, loving. The gospel addresses both. Be a good servant. Be a good master. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Beginning in verse 31, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. In verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it for the love of other people so that you might point them to Jesus and the gospel. Number two today, crave truth. In verses two through five, Paul returns to the main thrust of his letter. He opened up in chapter one, talking about false doctrine. Let's look here at the end of chapter, the end of verse two through verse five. Paul says, whether they must serve all the better, the end of verse two, Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved, teach and urge these things, he says. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and suspicion. 
So Paul sort of uses this whole idea of false teaching as bookends to his letter. He begins by telling us about false teaching, be warned, refute it, get it out, and now he ends by dealing with false teaching. These bookends that sort of encapsulate the whole letter, dealing with false teaching and being submissive to the truth. And Paul there at the end of verse 2 says, I want you to teach and urge these things. What things? The things that I just said? Yes. Everything that I've said to this point? Yes. We've seen that phrase repeated throughout this book, haven't we? These things. Teach these things. Command these things. Sound doctrine. Sound living. And Paul says, I want you to take this from the teaching and to the practice and obey all of it. Because it's not just from me, Paul. It's from Jesus. Look what he says in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are not just Paul's opinions. These are not just Paul's theological musings as he sits around thinking about what to say for this young pastor. These are the very words of Jesus. And what kind of arrogance is it for us to look at the words of Jesus or some false teacher to look at the words of Jesus and to say, no, I've got a better way. I've got a better thought. Thank you very much, Paul, for your opinions. Thank you, Jesus, for your opinions. But I think we're going to do this our way. I think we're going to reinvent this our way. And Paul says, what kind of conceited, arrogant person is that, that hears the words, not just of Paul, but of the Lord Jesus, and decides, no, we're just going to teach something different. Look at how Paul talks about them in verse 4. They are puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He says they're puffed up with conceit. Literally, they're haughty. They're looking down on others. When you think about puffed up, what do you see? They're inflated. Their egos, their thoughts of themselves, their thoughts of their own ideas and their own feelings are inflated. They're puffed up, looking down on other people. He says they understand nothing. Literally, they're ignorant. Just like he said in chapter 1, they claim to have all this knowledge, but they really don't have any idea what they're talking about. Instead, they're just concerned with these unhealthy cravings, he says, for controversy, for debate. They're so self-inflated with their own knowledge and their own understanding and they just can't wait to let other people know how much they know so they go looking for a fight. And Paul says more often than not what they engage in is fighting or quarreling about words. Literally, word fighting. Not important words. 
We're not talking about primary doctrinal issues here that we have to defend, that we have to fight for. We're talking about opinions, secondary, tertiary matters of doctrine. Ooh, I found this really neat thing in Scripture that is just a really neat side note, but now I'm going to make it my main thing, and if you don't see it the way I see it, then you're not as mature as I am, and you might not even be a Christian. That's what we're talking about. Making these unplain things and these unmain things the plain things and the main things. Word fighting. And Paul says all it leads to is this. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. People who are so jealous of others' knowledge that they feel like their only defense against that person is to talk down about them, to accuse them, to critique them, to pick fights with them. Now, I know that all of us in here have been around churches enough to see faces and names and people and groups that immediately come to mind. When that particular Sunday school class or that particular small group or that particular committee Or that particular little clique of pastors or teachers gets really settled into one weird doctrine or one weird biblical thing and it becomes the thing for them. And they say, unless you see it my way, you must not be where I am. And so what happens with these groups, Sunday school, small group, cliques, whatever it is, Very quickly, an us versus them mentality arises. If you don't agree with me, and if you don't see it the way I see it, well, you're just them. And you must not be as spiritually mature as we are. And Paul says, watch out for this. That's the red flag warning of false teaching. Quickly develops conflict, constant friction, constant fighting. And why do they do this? Paul says it's to show off their own supposed knowledge and to gain a following for themselves. Paul says such people, he uses two phrases here, they're depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Literally, they're corrupted. They're wasted. Maybe in more ways than one. They're destitute. They're in need of correction. You know these types, assuming they know everything about about the Bible, everything about theology, and they have nothing more to learn. You're not going to convince me. You're not going to change my mind. I'm shut. I'm done. I will not listen to you because I have my opinions and I don't care to listen to yours. Deprived of truth, depraved in mind. They will not listen to anyone except themselves. Listen to how Jude describes them in Jude, verses 12 through 13, just the one chapter in Jude. Verses 12 through 13, he says, These false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Listen to these phrases. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Look at verse 13. 
the wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Do you see the picture? Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wandering around, swept by every wind of doctrine that comes along. That's false teaching. Shakespeare said it's sound and fury signifying nothing. Now, here's the wrong application to make here. Here's a wrong application to say, well, because doctrine can be divisive, because doctrine can create differences between believers, well, we should just avoid doctrine. We should just downplay doctrine, especially the differences. Don't worry about it. We know that isn't Paul's intention because Paul never downplays sound doctrine. I mean, have you paid attention the entire book? Get the false teachers out. Pay attention to the sound doctrine. Teach these things. Urge these things. Command these things. Paul knows there's truth. There is primary gospel biblical truth. And he knows it will divide people. He's not saying to avoid sound doctrine. He's not saying to avoid calling out false teaching. He's warning false teachers not to detract from sound teaching. The problem isn't the sound doctrine. The problem is those who would distract from it. So Paul says, yes, love each other. Live in harmony. Live in unity. But only if it's in the truth. Only if it's in the truth of the word. People say doctrine just divides people. That's true. Truth divides people. Truth divides people really quick. Error divides people really quick. But here's the difference. Error divides people to death. Truth divides people to life. Error leads to death. Truth leads to life. We want that division because we want to live. I wonder this morning if you find yourself in submission to God's word. You find yourself submitting to God's authority, God's truth, coming into the preaching of the word, going to your Sunday school class, going to small group. And I'm not saying to never have a disagreement. Those are good. I'm not saying to never argue and debate. Those things can be helpful. We will have differences But do you go submitting to God's word, wanting not just to have your own opinion heard, but wanting at the end of the day to know what God says and to submit to it and to obey it? Do you submit to God's truth or are you puffed up with your own? Paul reveals the outcome of such rebellion, didn't he? Earlier he said shipwreck. They've made shipwreck of their faith. It leads to death. Here he says that they are deprived of truth and depraved in their minds. Not content with what God has revealed. Not content with what God has given. And instead of receiving gratefully what God has revealed and what God has given, they go on to do their own thing, and so they miss completely what God has given and what God has revealed. Why? Because they think 
that their version of godliness, Paul says, is a means of gain for them. Well, if I start teaching this thing, if I contradict my pastors and my teachers and my deacons, and I start my own little thing within the church, my own movement, well, that could be very lucrative for me. One, as a means of getting people to follow me and not the pastor, not the word. Or number two, as a means of me actually making some money for myself. I mean, how many cults, how many false doctrines have developed in the denominations that are rich with money? And you see from the get-go, maybe that was the plan all along. Power, money, influence, political strength. Paul says these people imagine that their version of godliness will get them great gain. And so they want more and more and more and more. Always looking for satisfaction there, but always coming up empty. Paul says, though, if we would just crave truth. If we would just crave truth. Number three today. We would be content. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a benefit to godliness. Not just in some spiritual abstract way. It's good to be godly. I get a blessing spiritually. No, Paul says there are real world applications for this. There's real world blessing. And being Godward in our lives. And the number one benefit, he says, is contentment, satisfaction, fullness, completeness. And what does he say the key to that is? Godliness. That's a really Christian y word that just means living in a Godward way. With our life, with our thoughts, with our passions, living towards God. First, through sound doctrine, and as an offshoot of that, through sound living. You see, false teachers, at least in part, are motivated by selfish ambition and greed. They're not content with what they have, so they want more. Whether it's God's revelation that's not good enough for them, or God's blessings that aren't good enough for them, they want more and more, and so they're driven by selfish ambition and greed and jealousy. And Paul says, no, we must be the opposite. He says in verse 7, we came into the world with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. Jessica and I went to the mall on Friday, and as we were coming out of the mall, there was a character outside of the mall yelling at all the people going in and out of the mall. I don't know his life situation. Uh, riding on a bicycle seemed to be homeless, but his message was pretty simple. And we start to, we, as we were walking by and immediately wanted to dismiss him, I started hearing these words. Y'all can't buy satisfaction. As we went in and out of the mall, You came in this world naked, and you're going to leave naked. You came with nothing, and you're going to leave with nothing. God gives you everything you need. Now, I'm not sure the man was some sort of prophet. I don't think he was very well in the head, but I received that message, and Jessica said, maybe we ought to listen. I said, you know, I'm actually preaching that on Sunday. Maybe that is is a message right there. We came in this world naked, and we're going to leave naked. We came with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. So what's Paul's point? Find contentment outside of those earthly things. Find contentment outside of the earthly things. Paul says in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, 
With these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. Food and clothing. At the end of the day, what more could you ask for? God's blessing, life, health, consciousness, being alive, breathing God's air, living in God's creation. And so Paul says, God we're living with that kind of contentment, that kind of satisfaction, that is great gain. To live grateful for who God is and what God has given you. To live grateful that he has shown you the truth. Think about it the way Jesus said it. What good is it to have the whole world and to miss truth? If you had everything, if you had everything the world could give you, but you didn't have truth. Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? On the other hand, if you have nothing of this world's goods, but you have Jesus. Philippians 4, 13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment in Jesus leads to righteousness, full satisfaction, and completeness. Jesus says, or Paul says, though, those who desire to be rich fall into a snare, temptation, senseless and harmful desires that plunge to ruin and destruction. Verse 10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money, or the love of money, he says, is the root of all kinds of evils. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If the root is bad, the fruit will also be bad. If the root is greed and discontentment and jealousy and envy, what is that going to produce except more of the same and ultimate condemnation? If you have a bad root, you're going to have bad fruit. On the other hand, if we are rooted in truth, if we are rooted in Christ, I think I remember Paul saying something about those fruits. In Galatians 5, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Rotten root equals rotten fruit. But if we're rooted in Christ, we'll produce the fruits of the Spirit. And this is no light matter today. When Paul talks about riches and those who desire to be rich according to the world's standards... He says many, when they get wrapped up in this, bring on self-induced sorrow. And they drift away from Jesus. Even believers drift away from Jesus through their greed, through their discontentment, through jealousy, through envy. This is no harmless sin. Listen, because it deals with lordship. And in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You will either serve one or the other. This is a question about lordship. This is a question about who is God. And we may sit here today and say, well, money isn't my God. My job isn't my God. Well, here's some questions. Does your job run your life? What do you do with your time? 
What do you do about the body of Christ? Do you see a constant pattern of neglecting the things of God for the things of the world? We might sit here today and say, well, Jesus is my Lord. But what idols are there in the high places of your life? And your priorities and your time and your passions. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your treasure? Where's your time? Where's your finances? That shows you where your heart is. Time, energy, service, priorities. What do they say about your heart? I don't know every need in here today. Maybe you do need a better job. I don't neglect to say that, that jobs can be bad places and you might need a better one. That's, Paul's not warning, warning us against that with the employer-employee thing. Maybe you do need some more money. Maybe you need to pray for God to bless you in a financial way. Maybe you do need better opportunities. Maybe you do need a better family situation, a better marriage situation, a better mental, emotional, or physical situation. Maybe that is what you need today. But here's the promise of the gospel for you today, no matter what situation you find yourself in. And it's not an empty promise. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus is enough. The promise of the gospel is that God's grace is sufficient for you. So the question for you today, where else have you been looking? Maybe you're here today and you've never submitted to Jesus as Lord. I'm sure you know all this stuff, you know all the stories, you know about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, you've been to church all your life, but you've never submitted to him as your Lord and Savior. Where else have you been looking for your satisfaction, unbeliever? You can find it today in Jesus. Believers, I'm going to ask you today, where's your satisfaction? Where's your completeness? Where's your joy? Is it in the stuff that you've accumulated for yourself? In your job or your notoriety or your place in the community? Your house, your children, your family, some other earthly thing? Is that where your, your identity and your passions and your joy, is that where it's centered? Or is it centered on Jesus? And the thing I think Paul would say to us today as we're going to sing is to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, things of earth will grow strangely dim. Turn your eyes upon Jesus today, believers and unbelievers. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this day, this opportunity to be in your house and to worship you. We thank you for the family of God that's here and ask that you would help us to serve better that you would help us to crave truth and to be content in you. God, fill us with a sense of satisfaction in Jesus today. Oh, that he is all we need. And as we discover him to be all we need, he'll become all we want. God, give us more of Jesus, more of your spirit, more of your truth. 
and let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.